Let's be clear on the stats, women don't raise capital. Pre the pandemic, 2.17% of capital went to back a female founder. Post the pandemic, it's a percent. Hey, I'm Emily Bellet, founder of Vespod and author of You're Not Broke, You're Pre Rich. And you're listening to The Wallet. Every week, we give you the best tips, guidance, and a good dose of inspiration and motivation to manage your money better. Today, I speak to Albright founders, Debbie Vosco and Anna Jones. The pair were introduced in 2015 by a mutual friend and found they had a common passion around empowering women. In 2018, Anna and Debbie launched the Albright Members Club in Mayfair, but were forced to close it down because of the pandemic in 2020. They explain how they overcame the unprecedented adversities and accepted the new normal. Raising capital and dealing with investors is difficult for female founders in the best of times. And they tell us how Albright managed these hurdles during and after the pandemic and why it's harder than it sometimes looks. I'd also just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, PensionB. PensionB has helped over 600,000 savers be pension confident. It enables savers to take control of their finances by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one simple online plan. With PensionB, you can manage your pension in a few clicks, check your real-time balance, see your projected retirement income, and set up contributions and withdrawals. Plus, you'll get human support from your very own UK-based account manager, who as PensionB calls them, Beekeeper. You can sign up to PensionB today with the name of your old pension providers in just five minutes, and if you're self-employed, you can start a new pension from scratch. As always with investments, your capital is at risk. We are not certified financial advisors. Information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Good morning, Debbie and Anna. Morning! morning. I've been to your space um, in London. I've, you know, followed your, your, your courses and, and your journey. And I love your story of, you know, meeting up and finding this, like, I mean, you talk a lot about sisterhood. Um, it's in the ethos and the mission of, of the Albright. And, and it's good that you're actually showing how it works. I mean, seeing you two, like, starting a business together, maybe coming from different, different backgrounds. Um, so... Can you tell me a little bit more about the early days of, of the Albright, like when you met, what were, you know, the first step, the, the idea and how you transformed this then into, you know, a huge business and you, and you sort of write your, your, your mission together? So, so I guess, um, as Debbie mentioned, we were introduced by a mutual friend who said to us, look, you're the only female CEOs that I know, so you two should be friends and he sort of you know he called that absolutely right but in a way that catalyst was a catalyst for the conversations around Albright and where we saw a significant opportunity to help connect and upskill um different women because you know our lives changed when we met each other um we knew we wanted to do something together but we didn't have a a business plan right from the beginning really i suppose we um, we met very regularly for uh, you know breakfast or, a, or or quite often for a cocktail and and I think what we realised was we had this shared passion for empowering women because our frustration was really that comment that he was the only uh, we, sorry we were the only um, female CEOs that our friend knew and and we just thought this is crazy you know in this day and age with so many incredible founders out there with so many incredible. Um, executives out there, so many incredible women full stop, why are they not reaching their um, 
the top of their professions and why are they feeling it's difficult to achieve their career ambitions, be that founding their own company um, or getting to the top of a company working for somebody else. So we started sort of scratching around, um, uh, scribbling it out on a on a napkin and, and, and talking about well, what would we do? What would we do to try and change the, the scenario? And, and, and we started calling it this um, Project Albright, um, named after the famous Madeleine Albright quote, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. And really, I suppose, once we started talking about it and thinking about, okay, well, if I was going to scratch that entrepreneurial itch and, and, and leave my corner office, and, and what was Debbie going to do once she had um, sold Love Home Swap? Um, what would it look like? And I think for us, we're very practical people. So we we, we focused a lot on um, what are the outcomes we want to achieve. You know, what, what, we looked at the data and we were really horrified by the data. You know, so little capital going to back female founders. I'm sure we'll come on to talk about that uh, in more detail. Um, so few women in C-suite roles in UK and US and global companies. What would we do? So that So really from that, we started thinking about, okay, how do we bring women together? Um, so we launched our first physical um, club space in 2018 um, and, and then, you know, soon after started thinking about uh, introducing courses. So we have a number of different courses that where women can really practically upskill themselves through the Albright Academy. Uh, and then Albright Digital sort of followed fairly soon after, which was a way of connecting women all over the world, not just those who were located um, near one of our club spaces. And you've, um, when you when you opened the, the first space, so for, for women only, you wanted to have. The, I mean, men have had this type of you know clubs and spaces for for a long time, and they were already you know helping each other and had their like support network. Was it important for you to have a women first? I mean, it's not women only, but like a women first club where women could just meet each other. I think that the reason that we came up with the idea of uh, physical space being so important is that networks really matter. And as we've all learned over the last two years, it makes a difference to be in the room. And we have not been in any spaces that were celebratory of women without being anti-men. And that's always been the positioning of Albright that we believe that you can have a space that stands for something above and beyond just bricks and mortar, um, that thinks about what women want in terms of how a space is designed, but what happens within a building. And then my business partner's old world acts as a piece of content, sort of living, breathing content, but a way to physically bring women together where all of the art on the wall is by female artists and the wine behind the bar. And we're just constantly focused on everything from the supply chain of food providers being absolutely celebrated women and it's hugely powerful um it's made a, a big impact i think on many of these conversations that have been going on for a long time um from gender pay gap to the fact that female founders don't get funded to that there are certain professions where there are very few senior women we think that space matters so to some extent it's a bit cheeky which is kind of in our dna that it's sort of subverting the idea of the traditional gentleman's club which of course you know is brits with the home of that way of thinking but i think it's more than that it's a living breathing network and a way of showcasing everything that women can achieve so it will always be a critical part of the way that we think about scaling the business going forward despite the fact that it has clearly over the last two years 
been really difficult for physical space. We've been open and shut. We had a building in America that we couldn't get to. You know, it, it's a complicated thing, but it's a powerful thing. Um, and when we think about what the business stands for, you know, we're in the building at the moment and just being downstairs and seeing women working, meeting, greeting, being, connecting, meeting other women that they don't know every day. These moments of organized serendipity, we feel is part of how we achieve our mission. Yeah, and, it's, and I think you, when you opened the club in 2018, it was, you know, this this new space, like something we, we haven't done before. And that was amazing to know, like, you know, in central London, there was a space, you know, only for women uh, that was friendly where you could talk about business and finance, because I can definitely relate to that working in finance for, for, for years and working in, in banking. I didn't have like, you know, a support network and I didn't really know where actually um, where to go. Um, we, we'll talk about the, the role of, of money and fundraising, especially when, you know, you're setting up this type of, of, of businesses, huge businesses with a, with, with a mission. Um, but you just mentioned, you know, over the past two years with the pandemic, it's been, I guess, a nightmare for you guys to run, <laughs> run the space. Um, thanks God you develop like an online offering. But can you tell me a little bit more about the challenges um, and how you you sort of reacted to them. You, you had to adapt, I guess, the, the, the team, your strategy, maybe your fundraising strategy. So if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, where, where you stand today, your, your mindset and, and how you see uh, 2022. I mean, look, it was extremely um, challenging for us, like so many other businesses. And in actual fact, we have written um, another chapter to our book believe bill become which covers this because we wanted to make sure that we referenced um some of the challenges that we've been through because it's that sort of typical thing of there's the instagram life and then there's real life and real life was extremely difficult as debbie just mentioned you know we had a number of buildings we had a lot of people um working for us you know as baristas or chefs or waiters or anything else um and suddenly the rug was pulled out from under us so um it was probably the worst week of our um, working lives, actually, when, when um, we realised we were going to have to close the spaces and that coronavirus wasn't just going to be something which sort of lasted for a couple of weeks or perhaps a couple of months, but was going to be much more um, permanent a fixture. Um, so I think for, for us, we, we probably had um, a, a 24 hours of kind of shock and thinking, right, okay, we've got to rethink the business, but we are very practical people. And um, luckily there are two of us and we're both really, uh, we're problem solvers. You know, certainly my whole career has been about uh, fixing things. You know, I've, I've worked in quite challenging industries and so thinking about how to fix things. So we went sort of very quickly to solutions. Um, we basically thought about what can we do? What's the, what's the essence of the company, the business that we currently run, that we could take digitally? And, and, and I guess more than ever, thinking about women would need us and what we do in terms of support network, upskilling, and a, a place, a safe place and space to come and talk about their own challenges with coronavirus. So we um, really scrambled the jets and thought quickly about how we could take um, the good stuff that we do in the clubs online. Um, and we basically crammed a, a kind of 18 month digital roadmap into um, a few weeks 
Um, we had a, a very small core team who had to play massively out of position during that um, those months. You know, we had people who were in sales who were then suddenly having to work on PR. We had people who were, you know, running, um, you know, the clubs suddenly having to think about, you know, producing content or managing a technical roadmap. So it really was um, a, a moment of not just, you know, sisterhood, because we've obviously got men in our team as well, but everyone coming together and thinking about, how we could deliver for our community. And, and whilst we were rebuilding our digital platform, All Bright Digital, we used the, the channels that are out there. So, you know, we used um, social media. We were on Instagram. Um, we were using um, Facebook. We were, we were on Zoom. We were just doing whatever we could to make sure that we really understood um, what our community wanted from us and just showing them that we were here and we were also going through a difficult time. But if we all shared our experiences and talked about our solutions, then we could get through it together. And I guess you've worked a lot on your resilience during this time and you're still working on it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, people often ask us, how do I become more resilient? Um, and, you know, one of the things that my sort of reflections on that is that if you told anybody what we were going to go through for over the last 18 months, if we've been told that two years ago, we would say there's absolutely no way. So we are all way, way, way more resilient than we think. And in a way, we have to just remind ourselves of that. So think back to those moments where we were, you know, having specific challenges. There might have been health challenges. There might have been homeschooling challenges. There might have been business challenges. But we did our best and we pulled together and we got through it. And, you know, we're, we're, we're still here. And you're still here. And I guess, yeah, stronger, you know, getting stronger um, with all this adversity and and. What is the, then the role of, because you have investors um, in the Albright, so it's not um, just you deciding, you know, what, what to do. Um, and I guess you have also some external pressure um, on the business, so of course, you know, from your community, from your clients and also from, from your investors. So can you talk a little bit about your experience of, of fundraising um, and, and how you manage that um, also during, during the crisis and, and you sort of had to pivot maybe a little bit if you can if you can use this term um so how how do you talk to your investors how do you keep the conversation um open to make sure we can still run our business we want to do things a bit differently but we're still going to be there in five years in 10 years time it's super hard like it's the <laughs> thing um you know let's be clear on the stats women don't raise capital um Pre the pandemic, 2.17% of capital went to back a female founder. Post the pandemic, it's a percent. 1% of the future fund went to back a, a business led by a woman. 89 pence in the pound pre the pandemic. Of all capital invested in the UK, went to back a business founded by a man. Um, percent went to back a business co-founded by two women. I think if you strip AJ and I out of the stats, it sort of zeroes out. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's really unusual because it's really hard um, and raising the money is hard but dealing with investors is really hard you know it's like any relationship you have to work at it it's about communication it's really difficult to pivot a business in the way that we had to and bring everybody with you um, there'll be moments that are really difficult there'll be moments where you don't agree um, because ultimately and I think this is a thing for the women listening to this I think it's really easy to glamorize fundraising um, and it's quite a bro-y 
culture anyway. I've raised this much on this valuation. And and ostensibly for Albright, we've raised a lot of money because buildings aren't cheap. But um, you pay for it in blood, right? I mean, you yeah. really do. Um, and that's both in terms of the way that it gets done and what happens when you've done it. Now, there are certain businesses, and ours is one of them, that cannot possibly scale without access to capital. But I think it's an important thing for women to really think about what they want as founders, what capital they need, where should it come from, rather than just see it as an end in itself. You know, and I've raised capital my whole career. And um, to some extent... Does it it get easier? (laughs) It gets easier because you've got a reputation, right? So... If it's Anna and I, someone's going to take a meeting. But the downside of that is everybody takes a meeting. Yeah, You waste so much time fundraising. Nobody ever says no. But but there's a difference between um, a slow no and a fast yes. And you'd always rather have a fast no and people don't do it. So it, it, it's a dance. And if you talk to any female founder who is multi-exit, who's raised capital, you know, Alex to pledge, Sarah Wood, everybody will tell you it's a nightmare. And and it doesn't matter how many times you've done it, it's a nightmare. So I think we need to be very aware of that. I think managing investors and managing a board is like managing anything. Um, it's managing stakeholders. It's about communication. It's about clarity. And I think that gets really difficult when you're having to shift strategy so frequently. And when you're dealing, as we've all dealt with, with some massive known unknowns, Right. You know, we just don't know. We still don't really know. And I think it's very, very hard to do without a partner. Yeah. And this is the first business that I've ever founded where I've had an absolutely equal business partner that I respect um, and who has a different skill set to mine and where we're um, everybody wants to know whether we really like each other as much as we seem to, but we you know, <laughs> genuinely love each other. <laughs> Without that, honestly, it would have been so hard. I can't even imagine what it would have been like. And it, it's all back to relationships. Everything in life and in business is about relationships. And really having someone on your team, and in our book, we talk about sisterhood, love, we talk about it all the time, and, you know, who's your own board of directors. And But I think in in very, very difficult times, and it, it unprecedented is actually a word I hate and it's been hugely overused in the last few years but it's something that none of us could have imagined the ability to have someone on your team who picks you up when you're down and Aja and I've got a sort of sixth sense really it's very rare both of us are on the floor like that's when we know it's really bad like usually one of us is and one of us isn't or when you sense the other person as you buck yourself up and you, you do what you've got to do whatever your thing is but I think that the cult of the founder, the cult of the male founder, the cult of the big fundraise, the cult of the sexy investor is a, a thing. If someone's giving you a lot of money, then they're expecting a very big return. And in the last few years, it's been really hard um, because so many founders have had to revise their plans. Now, there have been some huge winners, you know, whether it's Zoom or whoever, there's some huge unexpected winners. But for most people, it's been really difficult. And I think that that investor relationship is always um, a little bit adversarial. You know, it just is because they've got their objectives and you've got yours. And sometimes you're aligned and sometimes you're not. And investors are always at arm's length from the business. And you are grinding through a million decisions every single day. Right. So if I think about the conversations AJ and I had this morning about what's the plan, 
they were quite different from the conversations we had yesterday morning because some meetings happen and then we go backwards and forwards we whatsapp through the middle of the night we get up we think it's really hard to take people with you on that right so we have definitely engaged with our board and our investors far more regularly than you typically would in a non-pandemic situation because you you have to right so it's not none of it is easy and and i think it's very easy to read um the press about a big fundraiser and that sounds really glamorous and exciting but my point would be it is always about what's right for the business at the right time and it's always about communication advocacy but in the end the founders of the business run the business, right? And they live, breathe the highs, the lows and everything else. And you've got to make sure that you've got the right people around you and on your team to come through that. Yeah. Thank you so much for opening about that because I think it's it's something I see daily talking to my you know friends, female founders who are trying so hard to raise money especially post the, you know, angel investing, maybe the seed round. So when you start raising money, you can start raising potentially from your network. If you're lucky to have a network and angels will, will write you maybe small checks, then you can go through, um, you know, seed investments, but then, you know, series A, series B, series C, that's where it's become so tricky for female founders to, to actually um, raise money. So I guess with the Albright, from the get-go, you you had this plan of, you know, we need to raise a lot of money um, because you also have physical spaces. Um, how do you, do you sort of write your initial plan and, and decide, you know, how much money will I, will I need for, for my business? Because I guess... Once you start raising money, um, you always need more money <laughs> and your investors want your business to be even bigger. And, and, and so that, that, you know, you will need more, more capital. So how do you sort of plan for, for the journey and decide from the get go, I'm going to go this route or actually I prefer to, you know, take another route and, and bootstrap for a bit longer, for example? Well, look, there's not a perfect answer yeah. to that question because the business, um, that you end up with is not necessarily the business that you set out to, to build because you're listening to your customers, you're seeing what happens in the marketplace, you know, you're seeing what happens with your competitors. And so different things happen. But I think the important thing is you've got an idea, you've got an idea for, for a business. And I think bootstrapping is exactly right. So you need to test out that theory in as low cost a way as possible once you feel confident so for us that was thinking around we basically brought women together um in real life to to, to network so we organized lots of different events with amazing speakers and it was um women invited you know not not just women but it was mainly women who turned up probably sort of 95 and we just saw the power of those women coming together and when we talked to them, we realized they didn't really have anywhere to congregate <laughs> in that way. So we started thinking about, well, what would a physical hub, what would a sort of magnet for this community look like? But we felt fairly confident because we'd already done some, some market testing, I suppose. So I think, um, you know, we see a lot of female founders because we run female founder pitch days um, every month. Um, and what we would always say to them is test, test things out, bootstrap it as long as you can. Once you show that you have got a market and an idea that's got some traction, then you build out a more ambitious plan. And so that's what we did. You know, we, we didn't say we're going to we, we're, we're definitely going to have five buildings or 10 buildings. We said this is the plan for one building. 
and this is what the capital we need to do that and this is how what, what this revenue looks like this is what the cost profile looks like. this is what we think the profit can be um however the opportunity in the market is this size and if this goes well then we think we can do x y and z so i don't think you can sort of say to somebody you know we are going to have you know we have a plan for 50 buildings and it's going to cost this many billions you know that's not really palatable you have to just chunk it down uh, and that's what we did and we proved the model with a, a, a sort of relatively inexpensive physical space to start with and um, and in your experience of meeting so many female founders running your, your pitch days I mean, the, the, the statistics around women raising money are, are pretty poor um, at the moment. Um, do you see an improvement? We see more female-led funds. We see more women investing money. But do you see a shift or do you think it's going to take another 10 years, 20 years until we see more capital going into the hands of, of female founders? I feel like there's more of a conversation than when we first started in 2018 talking about this, that the stats that we've just been through seem very new and shocking to people. And I think one of the things that Albright has really led on is having the conversation. Let's have the conversation. I think that the, the way to solve for it is complex, but one of the key things is to ensure that you've got more women investing Because if only men write the checks, then, you know, it's very difficult to drive diversity um, because of things like bias and unconscious bias. But also, uh, and we know this from our female founders pitch day experiences, that a lot of the, the businesses that women are pitching, not always, but often, are pitching to a female audience, particularly in B2C. And sometimes if you think of someone that's been phenomenally successful, where AJ and I are very small, personal investors, Tanya, Bola uh, at LV, you know, like her story, she's a very old friend of mine, her story is about pitching a device that's around pelvic floor incontinence, place having a baby to a room full of men, like you can imagine. So I think things have moved on, but the stats have not moved with them. Um, so we need more women writing checks. We need to showcase female founders. When AJ and I first raised capital for our seed round in 2018, um, Uh, we were told, um, well, we don't really see any women pitching for capital. And MMC Ventures were my last investors in Love Hosop, who have now become a, you know, a mega fund. And they'd be like, well, you're the only woman we've ever backed. I think. So I think that's changing, but the stats are the stats. And we have to appreciate that the pandemic hit women harder, um, that I think that there's been a retreat Um, that, you know, everything that came with the pandemic that impacted women's lives, the mental load being greater than that held by men, most definitely in my own and my business partner's household. So we've got to, as we emerge, keep talking, keep shouting, keep showcasing, put our money where our mouth is. AJ and I are, you know, proud personal investors who only back women. I think Albright's got a critical role to play in the ecosystem, but there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and I'd love to see more women investors. And we see, I see a lot more women um, investing their personal money also, uh, which is fantastic. More women doing some angel investing. There's some, you know, clubs and, and, and it's something that's now easier to do. Um, I know bridging the gaps, you know, the pay gap, pension gap, wealth gap is also at the core of, of the Albright 
how can we can we help women maybe build more confidence in terms of you know managing their personal finances this is really also at the core of what we do at Vespod and I'm fascinated with the world of, of investing and it starts with maybe investing via a pension investing in the in the stock market taking care of your finances and and slowly going into you know backing the projects you love versus you know it can be in the, the public market it could be in you know private market but how do you help women think more positively um, about money so maybe you know sharing your own experiences about money and, and investing why are you passionate about that and and how can we help more women think um, think more positively about their, their finances and maybe more confidently? I think it's, um, you're exactly right. The thing that we need to do is talk about it more. We just need to talk about money more. Um, and I think that is slowly changing. It's something that we are really pushing, as you are, um, to just have open conversations. Um, and I think, you know, for, for me personally, I mean, thinking about you asking about sort of my own attitude to money, when I got my first job, um, luckily for me, I worked with somebody who is still a very dear friend who is was very, very sort of money-minded from an early age. And so she said to me when I was sort of age 22, have you got a pension? I was like, what? You know, I'm not even thinking about it. And she just said, well, just meet this guy who, who I deal with. He's an IFA, da, da, da. And I thought, she's absolutely mad. But I started doing it. I started doing it when I was sort of 22. And I guess... I just happened to have a friend who talked about money Um, and she still does and we still do. And it's extremely helpful. Um, I think there's this idea that there will be a time when you have enough money to do dot, dot, dot. Um, But that that day may never come. Right. You've suddenly got the means to be a big time investor or to sort of put, you know, hundreds of thousands into a pension. So I just think we've all got to start as soon as we can. And also, I would say it's never too late as well, because I think people think, well, I haven't done anything. I didn't do my pension age 22, or I have never invested in an ISA or a VCT or the stock market or whatever it may be, but you can have a go um, and you can start, you know, immediately. So one of the things that we do um, at Albright is, you know, we have got a number of sort of content pillars, if you like, around money. We've got a podcast around Uh, money and you know I I was just looking this morning at how many sort of money or finance focused events we have coming up even this month you know we're running workshops on um, financial housekeeping where um, Debbie is talking to Gina Miller about how we come out of the pandemic financially stronger you know we've got specific workshops on how how to set and achieve money goals and how to master your budget and so on and so forth and I think you know the thing that's that's great is if you can do it with other women it hopefully feels less intimidating and you can share your own tips and it's not something that you're being told about by your boss or your dad or your husband or your you know elderly uncle or whatever it may be which I think traditionally was the case Um, so I think it's just about opening up about it, talking about it, and normalizing it. And then hopefully we will start to see um, see a change. Yeah, no, th- thank you for that. And, um, and I guess both of you, because you've been um, also in- investing money, I mean, I personally find it super empowering to be able to use some of, of my money, even if it's not, you know, big amounts, but just to invest in the in the stock market in, in companies that I like or even write a small check to a friend um you know who's 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 launching a business 
or maybe buying some, you know, more, more like risky stuff, but, you know, understanding what are, can be the, the consequences. But how do you feel when you, when you invest money or maybe when you back a, a, a female founder and, and, and what is your motivation behind it? Well, as ever, it's a combination of profit and purpose, right? So we're very, very selective about who we back. Um, we see a lot. I mean, we probably see most female-led businesses that are raising a significant Series A or a large seed will kind of come to Albright either to Pitch Day or to us personally. And I think we're we're pretty good stock pickers. So at the beginning of the life of Albright, we had a small EIS fund, eight companies. We've had four exits from the fund. Um, so we're able to be selective, and that's important. I think we've got a good sense of what it takes. We also know the sectors where we can help, um, either because we've got knowledge or context. You know, we've obviously got a lot of connections and network, which is the thing we always talk about being really important for women. Um, and I think that it it feels very important of our mission. And, you know, we always say we have to put our money where our mouth is. We talk a lot about more women needing to invest. Now, there are big calls on our personal cash because um, obviously also significant investors in Albright. Um, but it's something that we keep doing because we think it's important to do. And it also it's a way of making money. And we've always been very literate around SEIS and EIS. Um, in a way, that's sort of more our comfort zone than stock market investing, because we're just used to the cadence of startups. And I think once you get into the habit of doing that, when you come to do your tax return, your accountant will expect there to be Um, some tax relief that comes from having invested in private companies. So it's a bit like a muscle, you know, you just got to keep working at. What's, you know, both of you, what's your definition of, of success? Um, and, and is money part of it? Uh, look, I think, of course, you know, definition of success is, you know, I think you should do something that you love. <laughs> I think that's, that's happiness if we're talking about career, um, but just generally in, in life. And I think money is a part of it, but it's about financial freedom. That's the thing. So I think one of the things that I've always thought about and talked about is you've got to be very careful not to build a gilded cage around yourself. So, you know, what I mean by that is that you, you get the promotion, you get paid more, therefore you just spend more money on stuff, on consumer goods, on rent, on a house, on a car, whatever it may be. And then you end up being quite trapped in that. And then you just need a bit more, you need a bit more. So I think you just have to think about money as a means to giving you the freedom to do what you want to do and to be independent. And I think for women, it's extremely important to think about their financial independence because we, we all know the statistics on divorce, right? It's really high. And so many women don't think about their financial independence and financial freedom and they can end up stuck. And so I think it's really important to... Um, to plan for, you know, positive, but also to think about what happens if things go wrong. And what is, um, what is next for you um, and for the, the Albright? Um, what are your plans maybe for, for the years or the plans you, you're happy to talk about and, and maybe over the next few years? I think we're hugely excited and optimistic about what women can achieve. And we absolutely see our mission in life and as founders to give them a platform to achieve that. I think that we are always fascinated by innovation and new technology. Um, 
you know, we're really interested in the world of crypto and NFTs and what that means for women. I think we're early to that. I think that's not something that women have been very involved in. It's something that Anna and I are looking to flex our muscles personally around so that we can learn. And I think that we see every day in our space the importance of women coming together. And that's something that we want in our lives because we believe that sisterhood works and we'll keep believing that. And that's what drives forward the plan for the business. And it's amazing to see that you're sticking with your mission, original mission with, with the Albright. I have uh, a few quick fire questions. So I let you answer <laughs> either both of you or, or, or each, each, each of you. Um, so what is the best financial decision you ever made? I probably started my pension at 22, like I mentioned. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, and maybe Debbie, what is the worst financial decision you ever made? <laughs> Um, marrying my first husband. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And maybe for both of you, what are the, the things you spend the most money on at the moment? For me, it's holidays. Yeah, always has been, actually. That's what I spend most of my sort of disposable. And children. Income. Yeah. <laughs> And children. <laughs> Um, do you have a book that you can you can recommend? Uh, maybe your book, actually. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Eat all the cards. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you know what? I, I'm a massive reader of um, fiction. I very, very, very rarely read nonfiction. Um, and partly also because I'm on the board of the Women's Prize for Fiction. Yep. So that's an, sort of another thing that I'm very um, passionate about because women fiction writers just sell so much less well than men. Yeah. However, I, The best nonfiction book I read last year was The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Um, I, I meant to tell you that, actually, I don't know if you read it, the Ben Horowitz. It's, it's not normally, I wouldn't normally reach for it, but maybe it says something about my mood over uh, the last few months. And um, I think that's very instructive. And one of the things that we're always extremely candid about, which is it's really hard. And um, it's all about learning every day to be more and more resilient having good people around you keeping going you know we talk a lot about grit and, and I suppose that's my other um favorite non-fiction book grit yeah. by Angela Duckworth you know and there's something I talk to my kids about a lot that we know that grit trumps genius every day the data shows that um but it's another thing to put that into practice and I think keeping yourself honest about how hard things can be and about how much grit it takes to keep going and reach a successful outcome is how you get through it it's a grind but you get through it yeah is there anything else you you'd like to share uh with with people listening to us maybe a final word i just think i'll just say that you know check check us out you know you can find us on allbrightcollective.com instagram at allbright and on twitter um at Debbie Wasp and at Anna K. Jones. So, you know, we are always open to um, listening to what people want from the brand and what they're feeling and thinking. So definitely reach out to us. And from a money point of view, I think I would just go back to that point to say it's never too late. So you can start getting your finances in order and you can start thinking about your financial future and your financial freedom at any moment. So, you know, take a moment to do it today. Thank you so much uh, to both of you. It was a pleasure to chat today. I will um, share all the links in the in the show notes and people should also, 
of course, visit your space and buy your book, Believe, Build, Become, How to Supercharge Your, your Career. And I hope we'll, we'll organize something together very soon at the Albright. I'm sure we have a lot more to share on, on, on financial education, but I wish you all the best uh, and I hope to see you both very soon. Thank love you. To. Thank you. Thanks, Emily. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Wallet. Every other week, I answer your questions about money on the show. To get involved, send your questions and comments via hotline to podcast at vespa.com. If you send us a voice note, you may even get to hear your voice on the next hotline episode. Be sure to share this show with your friends and subscribe on your favorite platform. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It only takes a few seconds, but it helps more people join our show. Join us again next Thursday for another episode of The Wallet. I will chat with Easy Howden, campaigns and policy advisor at Make My Money Matter about greening your pension.